and welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us again this week. It's David and Brent here. We're talking about our weekly uncertainties and the things we've been observing and thinking about. First, we're going to talk about some articles that we've written, but also I was on the road this week, had a lot of great questions from the audience. We're going to work through some of those. Also, we're getting some listener questions coming in. We'll talk through some of those as well. So always send us your questions. You can email them to me at david at aei.ag, and they might turn into a, a blog post. They might turn into an article, uh, or we'll just talk about them here on this weekly recording. So Brent, I want you to kick it off this week, and I want you to talk about the pendulum swings. We upload another uh, what we're thinking about memo that I wrote titled The Pendulum Swings. And what that's referring to is this idea that markets go through these cycles and they kind of move like a pendulum from not just sentiment, but how excited people are about markets on the way up versus how depressed they are on on the way down. And uh, it's based on some stuff out of a book called uh, The Most Important Thing, Uncommon sense for thoughtful investors by a guy named Howard Marks, who's this chairman of Oak Tree Capital. Really good book. Talks a lot about the credit cycle and how the credit cycle influences kind of economic behavior. And it tends to, you know, add a lot of credit when times are good. And then as times get bad, take it away. And that makes the economic cycles bigger. As a result of that, he, he talks, well, these cycles are there. We all intuitively know that there are cycles. And I think in agriculture, there's cycles there. We intuitively know they're there, but timing them is really, really hard. And, and he says, you know, I agree, it's, it's next impossible to time these cycles. But is it too much to ask to say, can we get some kind of sense for at least which direction that pendulum is swinging? Is it moving toward the peak or is it moving away from it? Or is it moving toward the bottom or picking up? And uh, he has a tool he calls a poor man's guide to markets. And in that, he presents a whole bunch of factors. And he says, you know, ask yourself, is the economy really vibrant or is it sluggish? Is the outlook really positive or is it negative? Are lenders really eager to make loans? Or are they, you know, a little bit more reserved and reticent? Is, cap- is there a lot of capital or is it pretty scarce? Are interest rates low or high? Investors optimistic or pessimistic, eager to buy or uninterested and so on. He says, go through and just kind of take the temperature and circle which, which of those you think. And maybe neither one apply. Maybe it's kind of in the middle. And, and his thought is, you know, when, when all those check marks get on the side of the economy being vibrant, the outlook positive, and lenders wanting to lend, interest rates low, nobody wants to sell. Uh, everybody says, you know, you have to be aggressive. And uh, when, when you get all the circles in that side of the ledger, it's a pretty good indication that that pendulum is swinging up towards the high side of things. When nobody wants to buy and everybody talks about, you know, you really got to be cautioned and disciplined and there's recent performance hasn't been good and outlook's really dismal. And that's, that can sometimes be a good indication that we're moving toward the bottom of that cycle. And of course, this doesn't work perfectly all the time, but I think with farmland, it's probably served you pretty well. I mean, most of the time, farmland, you're going to find a mix of these things. It's going to be kind of in the middle and markets pretty fairly valued, but occasionally it gets all switched to one side or the other. And gave a couple of examples. If you go back, if you're around in the late 80s, 
everything was negative and nobody wanted to buy. It was probably one of the better times to buy farmland. On the other hand, the time period leading up to that was one of these cases where, you know, everybody wanted in to buy and there's no reason to think it was ever going to be any different. And, you know, even 13, 14, that time period, I think pretty exuberant. That's a good time, you know, to stop and say, maybe now is not the time to buy. It's a useful tool, something to get you thinking and just wanted to provide it for our listeners and readers. I think it's really great because it's one of those simple tools that you can spend, I don't know, five minutes, just work through this article, circle everything, and you can kind of get your mind off the, the narratives or the headlines that are out there. You sort of get tunnel vision sometimes as to what's going on. You know, you might see one article that says interest rates are going to be supportive of farmland values. Well, that might be one of what Howard Marks listed, you know, 10 or 11 factors we got to think about. So it's helpful to unpack or to back up and see the forest for all the trees, see all the trees in the forest. Another thing I find valuable is to step back and challenge yourself Every year, we don't do it like we should, but every six months or a year, revisit this chart, revisit this table and see how things change. So in 2018 and 2019, when things were pretty not as exciting, there were still some positive factors out there, right? Interest rates, while they were creeping up, they were still historically low and lenders were still willing to be out there to make loans. They weren't really turning away customers and the outlook was not negative, but Definitely not positive. Um, so it's helpful to sort of step back and, and not just to get caught up in the in the exciting narratives or the pessimistic narratives. And you know, it's it's funny as you start to look at this over enough years, you start to realize, holy cow, everything quickly switches from you know one side of the chart to the other. I think that's what we saw last year was the sky was falling last summer, and now we're on the side of the pendulum swinging where the sky is the limit, and that's sort of this narrative of caution and discipline versus, you know, the aggressive survive. So it's a great article. It's a great tool. It's something we'll, we'll talk about again in the future, but wanted to make sure it was out there and available for, for folks. Other article that I wanted to mention, we had a question on the Forecast Network about China buying $35 billion in ag products and taking a look at what they've done so far this year. They're at $13 billion through May, so five months of data on the books. Five months this year is equal to what we saw in all of 2018. So they're off to the races here. They started off the year aggressive. It's worth noting that the soybean sales haven't been as aggressive as everything else. So soybeans account for about half of what China purchases from the US on a dollar basis. Those sales, they're strong. They're much higher than they were during the trade war. They're a little under $4 billion through May. It's worth noting about 50% 50% of those sales happen in January alone. So there's a lot of seasonality in soybeans. And so the year's still left open, but it's the non-soybean purchases that are really up there. $10 billion in non-soybean purchases. This is a, about twice as much as we've seen through May for any other month in the last you know five or six years. We're going to break down those non-soybean purchases. Of course, corn is, is one of them that uh, has been part of that. So what does that mean for the pace? Well, what we can do here is we can kind of look at What's been going on year to date and what are the historic patterns based on seasonality? And this is an estimate. It's not perfect. What's important to take away here is China's at about a pace of $35 billion. So if they maintain the pace that they're on for the rest of the calendar year, they'll get to $34 billion. So we're in striking distance of that $35 billion we've asked the Forecast Network question about. But so far year to date, the pace each month has been in excess of $30 billion. So they've been pretty aggressive all year through here. 29 billion is actually the 
the record. And so if we get to 29 billion, that would be an all-time record. And that would be a really strong number. That record was set back in 2012. 2019 was really strong. As 2020 was very strong at 28.8 billion. So it looks like we might finally see these record purchases coming in through China. But again, we got to watch soybeans. We got to make sure they come in and buy a lot of soybeans this fall. And the seasonality of soybeans is half of the soybean purchases happened in the last quarter plus January. So it's about four months that account for well over half of all the soybean activity. To look at how bad the trade war was for American agriculture, those numbers kind of amazing. We've already passed what they purchased in 18 and that's through May data. Yeah. yeah. So we probably shot past that already within less than half, five months a year. We, they purchased more than they bought all of 18. That trade war was a, a really bad deal. I don't think people quite understand how significant that was and some of the fallout of that. We were doing our presentations to grow this early this week, and I was saying, you know, usage is pretty strong. Uh, it's slipped for 2021 based on the USDA's outlooks, but think about how high commodity prices are today and where usage is compared to how low commodity prices were in 18 and 19 and how sluggish usage was. And so that's really this demand story of we had lower prices and lower usage in 18 and 19 for all of the corn and all the soybeans than we have right now. And so that's that's one way of thinking about how, how and significant the impacts were. We have a list of questions here and I'm going to take one right off the bat here and you can add to it or you can pick a different one. So we'll, we'll, <laughs> we're going to use the easy ones right off the, the the top. And one of them was, are you more bullish on corn or soybeans? I think this came out of the WASD supply and balance sheets, which we've wrote about those and, and there's some recordings on that. And the point I was trying to make here is soybeans have a really tight stock to use ratio at the moment. It's about three and a half percent. The kind of the low end of the range for soybeans is closer to 3%. So if we have a production hiccup, especially in soybeans, we're not going to see stocks use get much below that 3%. We're going to have to ration usage and we're going to see that through higher prices. And so I think we have to realize that soybeans are a little bit closer to the bottom of the barrel than say corn. Corn's closer to 10% stocks use and 7% sort of the where the line gets to E on the gas gauge. And so that's what I was thinking it's important to recognize is where we are on the stocks to use. Stocks to use are tight for everything, but they're relatively tighter in in our viewpoint for soybeans and the implications for that if we have one of these hiccups. I think that's well said. There's just less room for error on soybeans. That being said, we're talking about production hiccup. If production actually turns out to be better than expected, probably have more chance for downside as well relative because they're in that really tight stocks to use ratio which means little changes result in big price changes uh, little changes in supply cause big changes in prices a lot of potential movement in that commodity going forward and of course the yield uncertainty is declining rapidly, probably more so for corn than for beans at this point, but it does seem to be declining, I think. The uncertainty is declining. Probably the yield is increasing. Well, that gets me to the next question because I apparently was 
my forecast for yields was probably higher than what the group thought. So someone asked, why is your forecast so high for corn yields? And I, of course, used the AFN question about the probability of above trend yields. And my forecast is between 60 and 65%. You know, 60% is the base. If we know no information about weather, we come in at 60%. I'm also living in Indiana where you have to mow your grass three times every week just to keep up with it. So uh, my backyard bias is, is really strong. And I've been following the yield bond, the yield project that Jeff's been putting out for us on a regular basis. Those have trended higher. I believe this week's estimates getting close to 180 for these yields. I was also, you know, reviewing some of the stuff Jeff wrote this spring and that USDA model they use, the Westcott Jewison. There's some factors in there that if you read through there, I think July precipitation and July weather has been pretty favorable for the U.S. corn crop. So again, I think we've taken off the 2012-like events, which is would be 140 bushels here in the U.S. this year. It also takes off the the high end, which are maybe 190 plus bushel yields are off the table. But I think we're starting to see a range that's on either side of, of trend. And I think maybe there's a, some upside here, especially if the weather continues to hold out. So a lot of uncertainty. I can change my forecast today with the, the latest data, but I think that's where I stand today. Yeah, the, the yield models that just produced and trended higher. We made it through some critical time periods. And, you know, I know weather's not perfect. I mean, my backyard bias is the opposite. It's really bad here, uh, really dry. But on balance, that's not the case. I am not quite as high. I think I'm like 55, 58% somewhere above trend, but chance of above trend. So it surprises me a little bit that people for a long time seem to be very reluctant to even talk about anything close to trend level yields. There's certainly a chance, I think probably a decent chance on corn. I think on soybeans, there's still quite a bit of time left on soybeans, things to either get a lot better or a lot worse. I'm at maximum uncertainty on soybeans. I'm at a 50-50. My rule of thumb here is to wait for August. Because if you look at those models that USDA uses, um, they have a, a variable in there for August weather. And I think that's really important to keep August in mind. And I grew up in Southeast Kansas where soybeans are made or lost in, in the last the last end of the sprint, right? Soybeans can really fall down there in the last uh, last sprint of the race. So I, that's my bias. I, I've seen too many beautiful soybean crops failed <laughs> as soon as they started to put pods out. So we got to yeah. watch white for soybeans for a while. You know, like you said, to me, the chances of the really bad crop are receding. And I know there are places that are going to have really bad crops. But I think you did an article a few years ago. And what is it? Something like 15% of the counties in the United States are 85% or less than trend yield in any given year. Yeah. I'm going to update that. Actually, I've been working on that that data. But Millions of acres always collect crop insurance, and I think it's, it's no comfort for those that are experiencing it. It's, it's a disaster for them, but uh, we always have some part of the country. I guess if we didn't have some part of the country that was having a hard time, we'd be talking about 190 or 200 bushel national corn yields. I think that's the, the other end of that, that argument. Well, Brent, we have a couple minutes left. I'll give you a choice. Do you want to talk about another question on the list, or do you want to talk about knowing your costs and some stuff we've been working on about the advice of know your production costs? I'll let you pick. 
Let's do another one off the list. I think maybe we should write another uh, another article on knowing your cost. All right. Have we already written on? No, we haven't. We have some ideas. So we'll, we'll talk about <laughs> okay. knowing your cost and what cost you should know. So go ahead and take one off the list. Inflation or the okay, federal deficit? We'll, we'll do the inflation. David got it. What I thought was a pretty good question from the other day, because it's based on people's observations and reality. The person said, basically, you know, why is it that uh, inflation is always, you know, what I observe for price increases a lot more than what's reported for inflation. For instance, inflation rate might be, you know, 2-3%, but I'm seeing like 5-10% price increases. So why, why is that? Isn't somebody underreporting inflation? And that's a really good question because based on reality, right? I mean, we don't usually see those little bitty price increases. You notice them when they're big. And that's part of part of what's called the availability bias. So we're just seeing a, a subset of a very small subset of all the price changes that are going on out there. So and we notice and, and we tend to notice prices when they go up. So I was telling David several months ago, actually, and like, man, you know, inflation is kicking up. I went to McDonald's and took just one of my kids there and I'm like, holy cow, you know, it was like almost a $20 bill at McDonald's. What's going on? There's a lot of inflation. It's like, well, it's a little bit of a availability bias print and, you know, so, and he's right. So I think that's, that's part of it. And then part of it has to do with the different types of products that you're, you're buying and purchasing. And part of it has to do with how often those prices increase. So they may not increase for a long time and then go up 10%, but over you know, the long time period, they haven't increased more than about 2% a year. Yeah, I think another point, Brent, that you've brought up to me in different conversations is there's a lot of things we don't see regular reported prices for, right? We can see changes in commodity prices or oil prices or gas prices. But a lot of times it's, it's the service side of the economy. We don't always see the inflation. The data aren't as readily available. So, you know, how long, how much does it cost to get your grass mode? How much does it cost to get your hair cut? How much does it cost to, you can continue on this list for, for quite a ways. And, and that's a huge part of our economy. We don't always, the Fed, I think, struggles to get some of the pricing data on that. So that's another important thing to keep in mind. I'll also mention, you know, there is a difference between the consumer price index, which Congress watches, that's what retirement benefits are paid out of. And there's also the PCE, which the Fed uses. And one of the differences is the CPI has a fixed basket of goods or a bundle of goods. And so they're looking at the price changes. And the PCE accounts for how consumers might change what they buy. So if, for example, something starts to get really high, they know that customer starts to substitute away from that. And so this is another part of that equation. Now, oil is hard to switch away from, right? But if chicken wings get really expensive, you're not going to buy bone-in chicken wings. You might buy boneless chicken wings or you might get a hamburger instead. And so that's another thing that happens between even inflation measures. They take into account, some of them take into account substitution. There is a never-ending amount of controversy, I think, over different inflation measures. And we talked about that in an article a while back. And on top of it, it's really hard to do. So you think about the the goods that you're buying are very different than they were 10, 15 years ago. I mean, the phone you buy today is way different than it was 15, 10 years ago, I think even probably, uh, but certainly 15 years ago, very different phone. So 
there's lots of challenges now all this might sound like you know we're we're talking down inflation that's not the case i mean the data are there and the data are showing that inflation right now is much higher than it has been for for quite a while and the great debate is going to be does it dissipate quickly or does it stick with us that's going to have to play out over a longer time period because and and there's smart people on both sides of of that debate I think there's some concern that that maybe it's going to stick around a little longer than than we might have wanted and maybe have a little bit higher inflation rate than we're used to for a while. Part of it, I think, is going to depend on what Congress ultimately ends up doing with all these stimulus packages. I mean, the economy is kind of juiced right now. The federal government coming in and spending, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars more is going to do nothing but juice it even more. If you remember a while back, uh, Larry Summers got a lot of heat. He's a Democrat, famous economist, as well as president of Harvard and former treasury secretary and everything else. He came out and said, hey, you know, this whole thing is sending out the stimulus checks again to people. We don't need that. Don't do it. It's already overheated. And they did it anyway. Now we're doing even more. You kind of wonder how wise all that is and when the Fed will have to raise rates to slow it down. And I think that's the other part of this equation, right, is is we haven't seen the Fed pump the brakes or really let, let their foot off the gas very much. So we're still in the, you really want to dig back in the archives when Biederman drinks, everyone drinks. We're still in the let's keep the economy going side of it. And we're not really thinking about the other side of that that coin. That conversation will eventually start to shift. So we have to keep that in mind. But, you know, if we think about how much, how sticker shock we've seen the data are saying 3% inflation, 3.4% inflation in that neighborhood. The, the sticker shock we've seen from that, think about what it was like to be in the seventies where we had 6% averaged for a decade. So the decade average was 6% and a few years got to the double digits. And so people were changing their prices all the time to keep up with that. So that's another part of that. So one last story about inflation, Brent, and we'll wrap this up. I went to a, <laughs> I was uh, on the road a few weeks ago and I went to a little cafe and they hand the menu out. And one of the things that prevents costs from being changed all the time or something economists call menu costs was just the cost of printing a menu. And so they had a clever way of, of getting over those menu costs because it takes time and money to update our prices, especially McDonald's can probably do it really quickly with their new fancy video boards but you know otherwise you have to print new menus well they got some stickers and just put stickers <laughs> over all the prices and they hand wrote the new prices and i have no idea when that happened it could have happened five years ago but when i sat down and i saw those stickers i initially thought like oh my gosh they must have just raised their prices because <laughs> it it's availability bias there must be inflation rampant because even this little cafe and this corner of the world is 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 figuring out ways to raise their prices but again i have no idea when those stickers were put on there but keep sending your questions and we'll keep uh, making these videos in the meantime stay curious thanks for listening thank you